This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So, there's a lot that's stirring inside of Eric Ludy, and uh, Certain challenges that I've faced as a leader over the years when certain leaders have died, uh, certain leaders have fallen, uh, that either, and sometimes I'm close friends with them. And so the, the tensions in my soul as, we, as I navigate forward, uh, I got a text from Walter uh, this week just talking about Josh Harris and his most recent decisions. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, I guess, getting a divorce from his wife. And the significance in that, the symbol to me is, is very, runs deep in my life. And I've known Josh for years. And what I see happening, which matches with what I'm about to talk about, and that's not the reason I'm giving this message, it's just, it parallels. There's certain things Steve was just saying, there's certain things that I, I said this morning. My, my message this morning, for instance, for any of you that are Ellerslie grads, was on the Endless Frontier. And it's about not stopping short, but pursuing more. So I'm hearing Steve, and if I were to define what Steve just said, it's the endless frontier. There's more to be had. Let's not settle where we're at. And there's something about that. There's, there's a split that I see taking place in the church of Jesus Christ, and it is becoming increasingly more and more unpopular to be an evangelical Christian to the point where I am seeing key leaders actually distance themselves from the soundness of the faith because they want to choose a level of notoriety or popularity instead of the foolish badge of being a Christ follower, one that actually just believes the word to be the word of God and is unashamed in that position. This is a pain for me, especially when I know the people that are doing it that I've walked for decades next to. And as a church, if I could say what bleeds out of me in a time like this, it's like if I could plead one thing, it's don't veer away. There is something so precious in the purity of the gospel, in the purity of trusting the words of God as a little child. And it doesn't matter what our culture says, it doesn't matter how they treat you. I expect to be the fool, and that's the difference with many other Christians, is they don't want to be the fool. I accepted it a long time ago. I'm okay with it. You know, it really does help your forward progression if you decide once and for all that you are going to be with that one that hung naked on a tree, scourged and mocked. He was a worm and no man. And you are willing to say, I am with him. Yes, I am with him. You actually are, you're going to say you're with him? You know how the culture will look at you? Yes, I do. I know how the culture has looked, looked at him, and I know how it's looked at all Christians throughout the ages. I am with eyes wide open making this decision. So in the midst of these 
seasons where you see the split taking place, the fracture, where people are saying, what, what is the term? Grace shared it with me. It's uh, X, um, what, what's, what's the term? Where's, I don't know. I saw Grace earlier, but I don't know. Exvangelicals. It's like, I'm not with them. I'm not with them. Well, you know what? I get that. I don't really want to claim the church of Jesus Christ today either in my natural man. It's like, yeah, I'm with the church that's unhealthy and weak and mediocre. That's, I'm with them. I don't want to do that either. I understand what happens. However, are we willing to be like a Jeremiah that stands with his people instead of throws them out? I know the church is weak, but God has chosen a vessel through which to reveal his glory. And even though it's a weak vessel and it's not very attractive and it stinks a little, are we willing to stand with it and say, this is God's chosen vessel? And yes, I want to see it grow stronger. And yes, I want to see it remove that little stink off of it. But this is still his chosen vessel. And I'm not going to distance myself from it to look good to this world. So that'll sort of play into the message. You'll understand some of the deeper things that are stirring inside of me. I've, I've talked about Jonathan in the past. This is the Jonathan and David Jonathan, the son of Saul. And... I'm very impressed with Jonathan. Jonathan is a symbol. I could preach on Jonathan as a symbol of us. But in this message, I'd like to introduce you to Jonathan as a picture of the Christ. So it's a Christophany. It's a picture of Jesus moving in the Old Testament. And we see something modeled. And it is something that forces a decision. Who are we going to sit with? And there's a subtitle with this refusing to be numbered with the fearful. And it's a beautiful portrayal uh, in my soul, just how it moves me and how it challenges me. I've come back to this story in some of the darkest times in my life. And I've just stared at it and said, God, I need it afresh. I need you to freshly infuse this into me. Because when times get difficult, sometimes we start brainstorming how we could do something different. How we, we look for, if you're in a ship, and it's rough seas, you look for the lifeboat. Uh, if you're in a battle and the enemy seems to have the upper hand, you start looking for ways to retreat. There's a propensity in all of us to escape the challenge as opposed to go straight into it. It is not normal human behavior to be in a time of difficulty and then to enter the difficulty with boldness. It is an inclination in all of us to cower and to find a means of escape. And so what I'm going to introduce you to is the boldness of Jesus Christ. And it is, it's profound. It really is. To understand the symbol of this story, you guys have heard me say this many times, but there's always twos. There's a first and a second. And the first cannot please God. And so if you looked at just the Bible and divided into twos, you have the old covenant and you have the new covenant. The old covenant isn't bad. It's not evil, but it cannot save you. And so you could keep the old covenant, but the old covenant is, is just merely a instructor. It's a teacher that's leading you to the fact that you need a savior. You need a greater covenant. You need the second. That's why we must be born again. We have a first life in the flesh. And in that life, we are under a just condemnation. We must be born again. We must transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. Cain, Abel, twos. They both offer something. The first is rejected. The second one is received. Ishmael, Isaac. The first one is born of man's effort. It cannot please God. It's the second one that is supernatural that pleases God. 
Esau, Jacob. Two sons are born out of the womb of Rebekah, and the first one doesn't please God. The second one is the one God chooses. His name is also Israel. And God chooses the second all throughout Scripture. Saul, David, first king, second king of Israel. First king is rejected. The second king is selected. Okay? I mean, it's there. All throughout Scripture, you're going to see it. Now, look at this. You have Saul and you have his son. Again, you have a first and a second. They both are interacting with this one that is the better man known as King David. Or Saul didn't recognize him as King David, but that's what he is. He's anointed as king. But Saul throws spears at him. At least 21 assassination attempts on this better man. And so there's part of you in your soul that has to make a decision. Jesus is the rightful liege lord of your life. It's truth. But some of us want to throw spears at him and say, I refuse to get off my throne and allow you that position. But then there's a second. There's a movement of the spirit in our life. That though our father, the old man, is saying, kill him. He's the greatest threat to your throne. You know who's going to be the heir apparent to that throne of Saul? Jonathan. So Jonathan should be right there with his father. And the same is true in your own life. You have to make a choice. Do you want to stand with the old man? Do you want to side with him? Do you want to side with your flesh? With a life that is under judgment? Or are you willing to humble yourself and give up your throne to the better man, David? Jesus. And so this challenge, this tension in the soul, what you see in Jonathan is an incredible picture of the choice that we must make to give up our right, to give up our place, to say he deserves it. I accept his leadership over my life and they enter into covenant together. It's a beautiful story, okay? That's not what this story is on. But it's important to understand that what he symbolizes is something pure in the midst of a corrupt nation. So in the midst of a church that isn't doing so hot, we need to follow Jonathan. You're going to see a separation taking place in this story between those that refuse to leave Saul. And they're going to stand with Saul. But Saul's killing them, guys. Saul isn't leading them to victory. And yet, it's Israel. So, hey, I'm going to be a dutiful soldier and I'm going to stay with Saul. Sit under a pomegranate tree even though we're surrounded by enemy hostile nations that desire to kill us. And then there's one who rises up and refuses to be numbered with the fearful. You know what's fun about this story? Is there someone who goes with him? And that's who I want us to be in this story. Maybe Jonathan is the picture of the Christ. Okay, we're not Christ. But when Christ gets up to do what Christ must do in a generation, he looks down at us and says, are you with me? And he's known as the armor bearer. I, I want to I be that armor bearer that rises up and even though my knees are knocking, and you'll understand in this story why his knees would be knocking. You'd understand why the armor bearer would say, not on your life. It makes total sense that he would say, no way. And yet this armor bearer in the Old Testament shocks us all. And he says, I'm with you. Oh, I want to be that armor bearer. I want us to be a church that has that spirit to rise up in the darkest of moments and side with Jesus. So pulling a Ludi, 
I don't like this term. It sort of brings back some memories in my life. Uh, When I was in my freshman year of college, I was uh, on a soccer team at at Whitworth. Uh, It's now called Whitworth University, which always feels weird. It was always Whitworth College when I was growing up, or when I was there. And uh, we had this extraordinary team. It wasn't because of me, by the way. I was just the freshman who was trying to make the team. And so... I remember when I first got there, boy, the pressure was on. We had three All-Americans on the team, and so I was in awe of, of their skill because it was so much greater than the high school level. I mean, I was just in a whole new terrain here, and these guys were good. And I wasn't used to being the bad guy on the field, you know, the one that was on the lesser end. I was used to being the star, and now suddenly I stunk compared to everyone else. That's the way I felt. And so there was a lot of pressure, and I was... I was making some mistakes, and I felt like they were just spotlighted. And so I had my moment to redeem myself. And uh, I had a fast break. Uh, In other words, it was just me against the goalie. But this goalie was not your normal goalie. He was one of the All-Americans, and he was one of the scariest guys I have ever met in my life. If, If you could describe him, he was an animal on the field. And so what he would do, and one of the reasons he was so effective is he was fearless. And so he would come running straight at you. You're gonna, I mean, you can kick a soccer ball really hard. And when you're at the collegiate level, those balls move fast. And if they hit you in the nose, that's a broken nose. This guy didn't care. He would come running out with noise, too. He's like, Rah! and he'd, he'd strike terror in you as an offensive player. And you just, like, do stupid things. And it worked. And so I'm, I have a breakaway. I have the ball in front of me. And if you ever get a breakaway one-on-one with the goalie and you don't score... It's a bad moment, okay? And yet this is unfair to young Eric Ludi, okay? You know, I, if it wasn't that guy, I could have done it. But I, I get the breakaway, and you, I can feel the pressure. It's just mounting. It's like I have to score. I have no choice. And this guy comes running out. You can almost feel it's like, oh, young freshman meat. And he's like, ha! And I lean back. That's not the thing you should do. And I go, Pff! And the ball goes, Phew! About 10 feet over the goal, Okay? That became known as pulling a looty my entire freshman year. Okay, that wasn't a compliment, by the way. Uh, So there's a little sensitivity here. But there are actions that people can make that we could say, yeah, like that. And in that case, you're saying, yeah, don't do what Eric did. Don't, when the animal comes growling at you, the, the impossible straights are in front of you. You don't pull back and, and go into, uh, you know, lofted over the goal mode. You have to maintain your composure. You have to maintain your position. You know how to kick a soccer ball, Eric. You know how to keep it low. You know how to lean over the ball instead of lean back. You did everything wrong. You were trained well, but then when the moment of trial came, you blew it. Do not pull a looty. Coach, you know, speaking to the rest of the class, don't do what he did. Okay, now here's the opposite, the inverse of that. All right, all of Israel, all 600 soldiers, I'm going to tell you something. Don't pull a Saul. I want you to pull a Jonathan. Okay, what Jonathan did is exemplary, and yet it is so rare, so unusual. So that's what we're going to talk about is pulling a Jonathan. So I'm going to give you the backdrop to the story. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now I'm going to stop there. At first, that doesn't sound like that many. I mean, there's, especially if you study World War I or World War II, it's so many millions of soldiers that you look back at some of these old battles, you're like, that's nothing. This is actually a huge army that is coming against Israel. I mean, it's massive. And when you hear the numbers of what is in Israel, 
you'll understand why I'm, I'm saying this is huge, okay? It's in contrast. It says 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now, I'm going to give something away just because I think it'll help you reason through this. Israel has 600 soldiers, okay? Not just that, but only two of them have weapons, all the Philistines have basically captured all the metal workers in all of Israel at the time. So there is no one that can even make swords, shields. So Israel is in about as weakened a state as you could imagine. So you imagine a weak state, they're in it. And so as a result, there's going to be great reason why in the natural sense they should be fearful. Okay, I mean, I get it. When reading the story, I'm always saying, where am I? How am I handling this? And yet, 600 without even weapons. I mean, these guys, I don't know what they were fighting with. Uh, you know, uh, they bring out a log, and they're like, I'll take you on. I mean, I don't know what they had, but they obviously probably had something, some plan, but they were missing what would normally win in a battle. And it's not just a lack of weapons, it's a lack of men. And so you have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and get this one, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. In other words, we don't even have a number. The Bible loves to give numbers, nice round numbers for the size of things. In this one, all it says is they were so many, you didn't even try and count them. It's just a massive amount. So in other words, this is, this is impossible odds. Okay, so it's like that goalie running after you, and you're the freshman. It's testing everything you know. Okay, Saul is a king of Israel. He's been entrusted with the word of God. He knows what to do, and yet he's not doing it. And people is a sand which is on the seashore in the multitude, and they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were <clears throat> distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Okay, that's just embarrassing, guys. In other words, the enemy is surrounded, and they are fearful, and they're hiding in, I mean, look at this. This is just caves, thickets, rocks, and holes, and pits. I mean, if you're the Philistines, are you going to fear this nation that is under Jehovah? I mean, look at them. They're marked by fear. I mean, the number one signal that you are defeated is that you are fearful, because the kingdom of heaven has no fear in it. It's perfect love in the kingdom of heaven. There's no fear. And there we are fearless. Eh, not here. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. The signs of imminent defeat. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. That, could you imagine? It's like, okay, who do we have? How many do we have? We have 600. All right. Well, what kind of weapons do we have? Uh, none, sir. None? We have zero weapons? How many do they have? Well, they have 30,000 chariots, uh, 6,000 horsemen, and uh, I'm not even going to talk about how many soldiers they have. It's so many. Oh, okay. Well, um, th that's great to hear. This is a bad situation, guys. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. So at least we know that we had two. Okay, we had two swords, spears, whatever, whatever we say, shields. We know, and the reason I know that 
Jonathan had something, not just because of that line, but because he is going to have something, and his armor bearer has something too, which I don't know if his armor bearer got like half of his, you know, Jonathan had the shield, so you take the sword. I don't know. It doesn't give those details, but we know they had something because of what's just about to happen. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One man steps out of the 600. It's very rare. It's very rare to be willing to stand up and be one among 600. Usually when there's a common voice among so many people, I mean, even in this room, if there was someone that came up and said, hey, people, I feel we need to go in this direction. Who's with me? And no one stood up. It's very difficult to be the one that stands up when everyone else is seated. Very difficult. The social pressure of it, especially when it's people that you know and love, oh, this is painful, guys. What Jonathan is doing here is supernatural in every regard. What he's doing is, it's craziness at the highest level. You could call it foolishness and you would be right. He is going to do something that is so utterly ridiculous. And that's exactly what our Lord came to this earth to do. He came to do something so utterly ridiculous. One man is going to stand up against that multitude. One man. Are you serious? That's why he's a symbol of Christ in this. What he's about to do is so extreme. I just told you, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and then a numberless multitude like the sands of the seashore. And one guy is saying, I'm going to take him on. I do know who my God is. I serve Jehovah God, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And then he looks down at his armor bearer. You with me? Could you imagine being the armor bearer? It's like, I mean, how about you go, show me how it's done, and then come back. And after you've won, then I'll rise up with you. That's what we want. We don't want the danger. We don't want the risk. We want someone else to do the daring and the courage. But are we willing to side with Jesus when the odds seem stacked? So one man steps out of the 600, refusing to be numbered with the fearful. There's a line that's coming up that is so powerful to me because they're going to take a roll call. And, you know, if you had to choose, you have Saul and you have Jonathan. And if you know that there's going to be a roll call over here and there's going to be a roll call over here, which one are you going to be found in? Now, Saul, it makes sense, guys. I mean, he's still in the land of Israel. He didn't flee, but he's not fighting. He's fearful. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, that's, that's you, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. Migron, I don't know how to pronounce that. The people who were with him were about 600 men, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other Sena. The front of one face northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. What's fascinating to me is that the Bible rarely goes into detail. It oftentimes will summarize things. Like you'll have these great moments, heroic moments, and all it will say is, and the Lord wrought a great victory. That's all it will say. In fact, it seems to be the master of understatements. So whenever the Bible zooms in and gives you detail, you should take note. Who, I don't know how many of you have a rock in your backyard and you give it a name. You know, that's, that's Bill, the rock. 
I, naming rocks, now we name mountains, okay, I get that, but rocks, that's an unusual thing to do, at least for us in North America. I don't, I don't know that many rocks. Now, maybe there are some rocks that are named, but it is unusual, right? And so we have, the Bible goes into such detail to say, yes, and this na- the name of this rock is Bozes, and the name of this rock is Senna. Isn't that just odd? It's like, okay, who cares? Let's get back to the story. What's going on here? And God's like, I care. I'm sharing with you something. There's something very significant going on here. So Jonathan picks his location. In fact, God seems to lead him very strategically through these two rocks. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God doesn't mind if every single one of us gets up and says, Yes, Lord, I'm ready to go. In fact, I think he prefers that, right? Or if just one of you is willing to stand up. He'll save by many or by few. He's the one that saves. The battle is his. The question is who's going to be with him and where are you going to be numbered? Are you going to be numbered with the fearful? Or are you going to be numbered with the fearless? Are you going to be numbered with Saul? Or are you going to be numbered with Jonathan? Who is this man willing to follow the fool? What? What an idiot, guys. I, I mean, can you think of... I mean. Everyone else is reasonable. I mean, Jonathan's cuckoo. I mean, you have to admit, come on. Everyone else in in Israel is responding normal. Okay, this is just how people respond. If you were surrounded by, you know, an army that was like the sand of the sea and with fully armed, doesn't it make sense that you would maybe be hiding in a cave or maybe a hole in the ground and, you know, just sort of biding your time and hoping you somehow survive, hoping God comes through for you out there? I mean, that makes sense. So Jonathan is going to do what no human in their right frame of mind should do. Let's take him on. Let's go and take on these Philistines. Well, wait a minute. There's, there's only two of us. I know. But God doesn't mind saving by two. But you have counted them, right, uh, Jonathan? Have we done our math on this? Well, we can count. Let's count who's on our side. One. But that is a big one. His name's Jehovah, and he has never lost a battle in all of world history. He's just looking for someone who will trust him, someone who will believe him, and I do that. Are you with me? So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you, according to your heart. There's your quote, guys. I'm just laying it out there for you to take. This is the quote of our heart in such a time as this. I have faced many seasons and situations in my life which just seemed totally impossible. And this one still beats them. I mean, this is a really bad situation, right? So it's really hard for me to even compare my situations next to this one. This is like affecting an entire nation. All history is unfolding before us. It's the nation of Israel. And by the way, this is going to split into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom is Judah, which is where the Jews come from. And Jesus is the king of those Jews. He is going to come out of the lineage of what is taking place right here. This is affecting the course of nations and all of history to reveal the glory of God. Who's going to stand? Who cares for the glory of God in this generation? This guy does. And the armor bearer sees it, and he knows that what is going on in the heart of Jonathan is right. He says, I'm with you. You almost want to give a lecture to the uh, armor bearer and say, come over here, come over here. Do you know what you're getting yourself into? You know, I know that you, you really like to do fun and brave and daring things, but this is stupid. Okay, this is at the level of stupid. You don't go against that, that 
That army out there that is going to just crush you, it's just a waste of life. There's a hope and a future for you. You're not going to find it there. You could have far more of a life if you just became a servant to the Philistines. You don't do this. This is irrational. Or is it? Pulling a Jonathan. Then Jonathan said, very well. Let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Stop. All right, now, Jonathan, maybe we should discuss this before we do this. How about we sneak attack and, like, throw a grenade in their midst and blow them up? And then we hide in one of those holes, and then we come back and throw a grenade in. I cannot think of a worse plan than, yes, now that you're with me and you want to do what's in my heart, let me tell you what's in my heart. I would like to stand in front of them and go, hey, (laughs) and we'll see what they do. They're going to kill you is what they're going to do. Very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. Okay, I don't know if you're following how bad of a model everything is that Jonathan's doing, at least to your natural man. Your framework of thinking is likely not going to side with Jonathan in this situation. But what does Jonathan represent? He represents a way that doesn't seem right to a man. See, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. And there is a way, his name is Jesus, by the way, that... that is right to God that leads to life. Are you willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Because there is a way that he has set forth for us that goes in directions that are going to seem crazy at times. God, you can't ask me to do that. Are you sure about that? You see, if you're in the armor bearer position, you say, whatever's on your heart, I want. I want to go where you go. Okay, here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand in front of this numberless host and say, here I am. You don't do, well, if God's doing it, you do it. Where was I? Oh yeah, this is the plan, okay? They have have the fleece out there. They're going to test to see which way they should go. This is one of my favorite little parts. There's a lot of humor in this story. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Hey, come up to us and we'll show you something. I always thought that that's a really odd phrase. (laughs) Now, my interpretation of that is, Oh, you want to see what men are like? Come over here and we'll show you what men are like. Okay, that's my interpretation. The, The translation doesn't sound very good. It's like, and we'll show you something. It's like, you could think of a better line than that, O Philistines. It's not very impressive. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now, this is a garrison, which means it's, it's a protective... Uh, it's officers or soldiers that have been left behind to keep a certain territory. So it's not the full army. They're hitting a garrison, okay? So this is the first thing. And that's actually important in the story for us to recognize that still they're standing up. There's at least 20 that are there, okay? And so the odds are really bad, but they're like picking a fight with a dragon, so we've talked about pulling an Eric, and I would not recommend you to do that. We've talked about pulling a Jonathan, and 
That's ultimately what we desire. We desire to do what Christ would do. But all of us in this story, I'd say most comfortably fit into the armor bearer role. That there is one who is going to rise up with boldness and courage that doesn't belong to us. We don't have that natively in us. But when he rises up and he says, follow me. That we say, I will follow you. And by the way, armor bearer, you do know where we're going. Yes. You do know what I'm asking you to pick up and carry with you. Yes. A cross. You do know what a cross is. It's an execution device. When a man picks up his cross, he is saying goodbye to life as he knows it. No one picks up their cross to follow and expects to live on the other side. When you pick up a cross, you're coming to your end. You do know that, don't you? And this is what we've been commissioned to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's the equivalent of saying, pick up your cross and come and die. That's what he's commissioning us to do. Follow me, O armor bearer. You want to see the glory of the Lord in your generation? You want to see what God can do? Follow me. Oh, my heart burns within me. And I feel the coward cry out too. I feel part of me want to stay under the pomegranate tree. And another part of me that says, but I want to follow Jonathan. You see, this is where the spirit of God triumphs. The second man is stronger. The second man is what we must yield to in our life. It's the second life. It's the life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will equip us and empower us. Yes, there's a voice that cowers and it whispers, no, think of yourself. But there's a greater voice. The greater voice of the Holy Spirit that says, come with me. Take my hand. I will give you strength to do this. So this is what we need to pull. Let's pull an armor bearer. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. That's you. Look at you. You're in the Bible there. How'd you get in there? You see, we are heeding the work of God in us. He is inviting us into this grand epic adventure. And there we are. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. I don't know what this looked like. I've always tried to envision what it's like for Samson to kill a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Okay, And I still don't have my mental picture of how you do that. But something about this is very intriguing to me. I, I, I picture Jonathan having a shield and then giving his sword to the armor bearer. And so the arm, Jonathan comes through and poof, knocks him down. Just as like blowing him. And they're like flying 10 feet in the air. Because you know, it's a good epic scene, right? And you have some Steve Rosen background mu- music behind it. And then the armor bearer participates And he literally, with the sword, is killing after him. I know it's somewhat of a bloody scene, but hey, it's in the Bible, right? This is actually the work, the armor bearer participates in this grand and epic feat. Do you know that we don't even know his name? Never once mentions the name of the armor bearer. Isn't that interesting? There's all sorts of servants in the Bible. Elisha's servant, never mentioned his name. Elijah's servant, his name is never mentioned. They're in the most epic moments in all of history. I mean, literally, I could start going through all these moments. How about the old servant in the story of uh, Isaac and Rebecca in their meeting? He's the main character in the story, and his name is never mentioned. They literally say, they talk about that man more than anyone in the whole story, and his name is never mentioned. Isn't that interesting? The most epic adventure we're being invited into, and God says, are you willing to be the armor bearer? Are you willing to be the servant in the story? Are you willing to allow the mighty prophet to be the one that is known, and you come into the story, participate, but without name recognition. Are you willing to humble yourself to become a part of this grand story? I just showed you, you're in there. 
Look at you're like crawling on your knees, getting into the battle. You're participating, but we don't know it's you. You see, that's part of what the Holy Spirit has chosen to be in this world. He is the servant, but guess who lives inside of us? The servant. And he trains us to be the hidden one that participates with Jonathan. Jonathan may get known in the story. His fame will spread. But there is another character that gets to participate in this grand adventure. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half acre of land. You see, in this story, what you're going to see is weakness that is actually being expressed. And through it, you see a power showcase. I mean, the fact that they killed 20, some of you are like, that's not that big of a deal. However, the fact that they were there and willing to stand up and to do this is what starts something greater. You see, our willingness to pick up a cross and say, God, I'm willing to follow. We're small. We're small potatoes in this whole story. And yet our willingness to obey, even if one of us were to stand up in this generation, one of us, and go between those two rocks into that dangerous place and say, I'm with Jesus. Just one of us. Something special can happen. You know, on the screen it says the earthquake. Well, you do know that the great movements of God throughout history seem to be accompanied with earthquakes. The cross, the empty tomb, Pentecost. God shakes the earth. Why? Because maybe it's Jesus that's willing to go between a rock and a hard place. And he's willing to bear himself before a nation, weak. And he says, watch what my God will do. You see, through that weakness, God has chosen throughout the ages to reveal his strength. A cross. He gives us a cross? What kind of weapon is that? He says, I want you to pick up your cross. Well, what about my sword and shield back here? Oh no, this is your weapon. Weakness? How is weakness going to be my strength? You'll find out. You see, when you die to yourself, when you give up your position, when you give up your right to be known, to be seen, when you give up your right to a comfortable existence on this earth and you choose to follow me no matter what, you will see an earthquake follow. Okay, I want you guys to catch this. What follows this moment of obedience is, just like the cross, just like the empty tomb, and just like Pentecost, an earthquake. You know, and then, of course, you go to Acts 4, and what happens? When they're praying for boldness, it shakes. You see, when the church of Jesus Christ says, we don't want to hide in a hole. We don't want to hide in a pit. We don't want to hide in a cave. God, we want to represent you boldly. An earthquake. See, whenever we are willing to step forward, in a generation like this where there is a clean line of, of decision that is being set before us, who are you with? Right now, political correctness is like skyrocketing in its sharpness and its clarity to say you're on the wrong side. So where do you go? Do you hide in a cave? Do you get into a pit, a hole? Or do you stand up? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with him. No, I, I, you're with the idiot? You're with the fool? You're with that criminal hanging on the cross? Are you serious? Yeah, very. Earthquake follows. We can't change the world, but we can pick up a cross and follow. God will change the world. 
And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now, I don't know how God does it. He has his ways. There's some great stories in the Bible. I was going through one on Friday with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat sets out his singers in front, and they go to battle against three nations. It's an impossible battle. And because of their faith, it says the Lord set up ambushments amongst them, and they, they all died. It's like, could you give me more clarity, God? No, no. You just need to know God wins. And here we have the same thing. These guys, all, the Philistines all turn on themselves. They're like so freaked out that they end up killing each other. It's like, what happened? Well, Jonathan and his armor bearer didn't do all the work. All they did was pick up their cross and follow. All they did was do the act of faith to stand against the evil. And it's God who won the victory. God who won the day. So where are you during the roll call? That's the question in my soul. For me, I'm always evaluating which side I'm going on. I want, there's times when I'm going through a trial that I feel like God even offers. He says, do you want to get under the pomegranate tree? Is that where you'd rather be? Do you want to get some shade over you and maybe a few pomegranates land on your head and open up and you get all that sweetness and light? That's where Saul is. Do you want to go with him? Well, the way you're putting it, God, not really. You know, because I can hear it in your voice. You're you're just sort of saying, are you sure you, you want that? Because there's a part craving inside of me. I know you guys understand. I want ease. I want to be liked by people. I don't want to be the off scouring of the world. There isn't anything inside of me that gets excited about difficulty, pain, troubles, tribulations, and trials. I'm not naturally attracted to these things. I just want to be where Jesus is. So that's what's overruling. If Jesus is going between a rock and a hard place, I'm following him. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, because Saul couldn't figure out what was going on. I mean, he's just sitting under a pomegranate tree, minding his own business and, you know, trying to be comfortable. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Oh, that's what I want. When they call the roll amongst all the compromises, all the goats out there, all the virgins without oil in their lamp, they call the roll, call, all right, who do we have here? I do not want to be amongst them. I don't want them to find me standing there without oil in my lamp going, oh, no, I'm one of those. I don't want to be the goat. I don't want to be the tear. I want to be with him. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth Five elements of pulling a Jonathan. To refuse to be numbered amongst the fearful. To be actively doing the work of faith. To smile at the impossible odds. I don't know how many of us actually like impossible odds, but all throughout Scripture, they seem to get excited when the odds finally turn impossible. Oh, that's still doable. That's still doable. Oh, it's getting impossible. All right. Time for God to show up. I love this one. To audaciously plot to defy the enemy. Let's take him on. Like we get in our little huddle and it's like, let's let's openly mock the devil. How can we make him look really bad? Let's get some of his captives over there. Let's break them out of prison. I still remember the story in uh, The Hiding Place. I don't know if it's in Tramp for the Lord or in The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom is talking about her, is it a cousin, Peter? Is that nephew, Peter? And... They, they find out that they, there is a hundred babies, Jewish babies, that are going to be executed 
or killed, murdered, the next morning. So they steal, they audaciously plot to defy the enemy. They steal Nazi uniforms and in the night sneak into the little hospital where they're at and steal them away. And then they have to, then can imagine coming to the church and they're like, here, we got some babies. Who's going to take them? We got a hundred of them. Imagine these young boys are like 14 to 17 and they have a hundred babies with them. (laughs) But I like it. There's something about that that intrigues my soul. It's like, I really like number four. I'd like to do more of that as a church. Yeah, let's, uh, let's start audaciously plotting to head out in search of the earthquake. Hey guys, without the earthquake, the church is going to die. We must have our lives shaken. We must have this room shaken. The body of Christ needs something more than we have. We are surrounded by a hostile foe who wants us destroyed. We have to head out in the direction of how the earthquake, where the earthquake is going to be found. And it's going to be found in the strangest place. It's rock, hard place. You know, this, is, this is difficult stuff. Two sharp rocks. Bozes, which translates as surpassing white, glistening white. Senna, a bramble, a thorny bush. The two sharp rocks in our lives. I want you to think about this. Because I can really identify with this. There is a desire in Eric Ludi, and I know in you, for the glory of God. But we are wholly unable to produce it in our own strength. You ever felt that? And that's one of the rocks. It's like it stands there, the glory of God, and yet it mocks us at a certain level. I can't pull it off in my own strength. On the other side... There's an impossible circumstance that we're unable to get out of. That's Senna. It's a bramble. It's like you're caught. It's interesting because we use the term a rock in a hard place, and that's exactly where you see Jonathan go. Let's go right there. See, we're after the glory of God, and we can't do it, but he can. And yes, it's going to be difficult. And so let's go straight into that difficulty for the glory of God. What a passageway between Bozes and Senna. That's where he's going. Are you going to pull an armor bearer? That's, That's where he's headed. You want the glory of God? It's through a pathway that is difficult. Pick up your cross. Let's follow. Choosing the path of Jonathan. It's the way of audacious faith. So I have four different illustrations that I use. Leslie and I will oftentimes bring these up. And we'll talk about the Narnian Ravine. Okay, and that might make zero sense to you right now. In in the movie Prince Caspian... Uh, that came out, they at least try and address it. But what, what they have is the, the four, what is it, Peter, Susan, Ed, Edmonds, and Lucy, and Caspian. They're all together, and they need to get to some place. I can't even remember the reason. But they, they get there, and there's a ravine. It's like, what? This used to be crossable, but now it's not. And Lucy sees Aslan. And Aslan is beckoning her across. Across a canyon? You can't get across the canyon. So she turns around and says, hey, Aslan wants us to cross here. And they all mock her. You can't cross here. And so then they go on this vast journey and end up finding out that the only way to cross is right there. So they come back and say, show us where you saw Aslan. Okay, after wasting a good portion of their life, right? The same way we do. It's like, they can't cross here? That's ridiculous. You see, God's way, as is shown in Scripture, is through the impossible path. Uh, yeah, we need to go between Bozes and Senna. No, whoa, whoa. No, no. I, no, no, not a wise idea. What's on the other side? Well, a garrison of Philistines. And then behind them, a numberless host. Uh, no, no, no. I think we need to find a different way to take this army on. It's only the audacious faith way that is going to get this done. There is one way to get this done. It's a narrow channel. It's a narrow path. 
it means you have to basically give up your life before you even start on the journey. You have to count yourself dead before it starts. But this is what's going to change the world. So the Narnian Ravine, they come back to it, and Lucy is like, it's this way. He was right there. And she, they start walking. He's like, Lucy, Lucy. And then she, the rocks crumble beneath her, and she lands down on the side of the cliff on a path. It was a hidden path. You see, in all of God's ways, and C.S. Lewis is bringing that out in that story, in all of God's ways, if we walk forward in faith, the path across the impossible divide is found. But you have to make yourself available. Jonathan is standing up, and if the armor bearer is like, explain to me exactly how this is going to work. I know that God is big, but how are we going to defeat an entire army? Like, let's say we take out the garrison. Then what? That's up to God. I just need to take the step forward and believe. You see, we don't have to have it all figured out. We need to trust the God who will make a way across the ravine. There's a hidden path in every situation. The trip up to Moriah. So Abraham has his supernatural son, Isaac, and God has given promise that through Isaac, these descendants will come. God will bless the nations through this son. And now God's saying, I need you to lay him down. We have an impossible situation because imagine in Abraham's mind, if I kill my son, then how is God going to bring this great thing about? And for all of us, it starts with faith. This is the picture. This is why Abraham is noted as the father of the faith. Because he believes. And so he comes up to that point, and even in his reason, you know what he's thinking? All right? Even if I kill my son as an offering right here, God can bring him back to life. You have to be willing to go in a direction that seems totally crazy. And I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard that historically, the same place that that was taking place is exactly where the cross of Christ took place in Jerusalem. That's Moriah. And I can almost guarantee you on that exact same spot. Okay, because God, he's not going to fudge it and mix, miss it by five feet, right? He's going to do it just right. The, the Romans dig a hole right in that spot and stick the cross down. And God says, I just wish everyone could see this right now. This is profound. You see, it's a way that seems impossible. You go to the cross, which is the last one, and what, what do you see? You see an impossibility. You have a Messiah who's supposed to destroy the Romans. He needs to defeat our enemy. Well, he's doing it, but he's doing it. I mean, with crazy ridiculousness, he's given up his life. And it looks like all is lost when he breathes his last. And yet, it's the impossible way. It's a way across an impossible ravine. But it oftentimes leads. It it starts with death. It starts with giving up. It starts with holding on in the darkest moment. The Red Sea is one of the greatest pictures of this. The nation of Israel is backed up against an impossible barrier. On both sides of them are mountains. And then on the other side, it's the strongest military force in the world at that time. Who wants them dead? So, how do you handle that moment? One of my favorite statements, and this is what uh, Randy was reading uh, this morning. Your way is in the sea. Now, we could say, what? That doesn't make any sense. We just look at it as good poetry. Where's God's way? Through the impossible. What's his way? Well, Across the Red Sea. You can't go across the Red Sea. What do you think they would have said to Jonathan? You can't go through a rock in a hard place, show yourself to the Philistine garrison and expect to get anywhere. That's suicide. No. His way is in the sea. He has a hidden path. Our job is to move forward. And when we move forward, he'll make a way. Many of us are halted at the Red Sea instead of being willing to present ourselves to the impossible. 
Are we willing to take the first step forward and say, my God will supply the way? Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. What a strange place to put a path. In the middle of the impossible? Yeah. That, that's not how it works. It is in heaven. God is the God of the impossible. You want to be in his territory, under his protection? Go into that impossible territory. He owns it. The impossible is his real estate. And so when you walk into the impossible zone, you're in his territory. As I was saying this week to the students, you step across that line from the possible into the impossible, and the light goes green, and God's on. God is waiting for someone who would be willing to trust him in the impossible territory. And when we do, boom, light goes green. God is on duty. You want to see God work? You want to see him shake the nations? I think we need to get between a rock and a hard place afresh, pick up our cross, and follow Jonathan. He wants to take us somewhere, and he wants to do something mighty in this generation. Let's not hang out under a pomegranate tree with Saul. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Father, I ask that you would do a mighty work in us. That you would give us grace to rise up right now in whatever circumstance we're in. To follow Jonathan. That anxiety and fear and fretting and foreboding would not rule us for another moment. That we would not fear the Red Sea that is before us. That we would not fear this mighty army, this numberless host that seems to surround us. And as a church, we would not fear that it looks and appears as if we are a weaponless army in the midst of a terrible fight where the Philistines, the world looks so strong. That which is standing against the church looks so much stronger than what the church has. And yet we are believers in the midst of such a weakened state of the church. And we believe that the God of old is the same God today. We believe the God of Jonathan in this story is our God. And he is willing to save either by many or by few. And Lord, so even if we are the few, I pray that we would rise up as that armor bearer and believe. And may you get the glory in this generation that you deserve. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.